Hello and welcome to Microphilosophy. I'm Julian Bagini. We're at the midpoint of Series 5, in which I've been discussing the habits and values of highly effective thinkers with guest philosophers. Now, we'll be resuming these episodes after the Easter break. For now, here's a very different bonus episode, although I don't know whether you'll judge it to be a bonus or not. This is a recording of an experimental live stand-up philosophy performance that has been sitting in my archive for several years. Whereas the series so far has been about how to think like a good philosopher, this one explores what happens if you apply philosophical methods in wildly inappropriate and opportunistic ways. I've already shared it with my band of loyal supporters, just one of the benefits you get from only £5 a month, and they were encouraging enough for me to now share it with you. I hope you enjoy it, but if you don't, please don't be put off listening to the standard episodes. That would be like refusing to read a Salman Rushdie novel because you once heard him give a lousy ukulele performance. Welcome to Bristol. I live in Bristol. Bristol is great. Bristol famous for a few things. What is, what is Bristol famous for? Okay. Somebody said suicide. Um, yeah, the Bristol Suspension Bridge, a fantastic feat of engineering by Brunel, a fantastically, you know, ingenious new way for people to kill themselves. Now, sadly, that is true. Um, you may think philosophy is not much help in stopping people doing such things. In fact, if you've tried to read Kant's Critique of Pure Reason, you may yourself have been tempted to go to the nearest <laughs> tall bridge. But this evening is about trying to counter that idea that philosophy is no use in solving your practical problems. Because I think if you just cherry-pick the nice bits and ignore all the inconvenient bits, philosophy is actually hugely cheering and can change your life. So um, this is going to require your input, or else it's not going to work. So what I'm going to need from you very soon are some real-life problems, dilemmas, situations which you think or don't think, (laughs) we'll see, uh, philosophy may be able to help you with, help you. And I'll try and sort of give some answers to that if I um, possibly can. Now, I must say, before I begin, that I was a bit surprised when I was invited to come here that I was billed as part of the entertainment, right? Um, philosophy, entertainment, uh, yeah. I mean, people do have always read Jean-Paul Sartre's nausea uh, for laughs and a bit of Hegel's phenomenology of spirit on the beach to unwind. So it always seemed a little bit unlikely. Funnily enough, though, Ludwig Wittgenstein did famously once say that he believed you could write a work of philosophy which was made up entirely of jokes. As a matter of fact, I mean, there are certain works of philosophy which in their entirety are a joke, of course, uh, not in the funny kind. But Wittgenstein himself really didn't make any attempts to try and show that what he suggested was really possible. Um, he might have been known as Vitti to his friends, but he certainly wasn't known that by his readers. But there are some good philosophical jokes, actually. There's one good joke made by a philosopher, Sidney, Sidney Morgenbesser. It's so well-known, it's so rare, virtually everyone knows it. We haven't heard it already. He was at a talk at which someone was making a hypothesis. There are many languages in which a double negative implies a positive, but there are none where a double positive implies a negative, to which he piped up at the back and said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the, that's the best line of the evening, and it's because it's not mine. 
So anyway, edutainment, that seemed a little bit unlikely. But this is, I suppose, edutainment, edutainment, which, as we know, combines all the mindlessness of entertainment with all the boringness of education. So that, oh, oh no, sorry, it avoids all the mindlessness of entertainment and the boringness of education and comes up with something a bit better. So that's what we're going to try and do this evening. So be free, of course, to prefix any of your questions with the words... I have a friend who, okay? Because I appreciate that sharing with such a loud, look, big audience might be a bit difficult. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, Julian, I have a friend who once read your book about the meaning of life, and I just wondered if you can remember what your answer was. Uh, folks, you're not quite getting this, right? Okay. <laughs> because um, I was trying to show that philosophy is not just about those big metaphysical questions like the meaning of life. It can help solve your daily practical problems. So I want to hear about your shopping problems or your relationship difficulties. But, you know, hey, the question has been asked, so we will go with that. What is the meaning of life? Okay. How long have we got for this session, by the way? Yeah. What's the meaning of life? Can I remember my answer? Well, <laughs> the short answer, I think, is simply that there, there, there's an a meaning of life, the meaning of life. There are just lots of ways of finding meaning in life. And it really is that open. A lot of people find that disappointing. The thing is, you know, people who say when you give up on religion, where's the meaning in life? Where could it be found? And you say, oh, meaning's found everywhere. It's found when you walk in the streets and you just be aware of the wonder of being alive. You hear the birds and it's the love and companionship of friends and it's the, the delight of art and all these kind of things. And some people kind of think, well, you know, well, yeah, that's, that's not enough, you know. There can be no real meaning in life if that's it, and it ends with death. And I'm not sure how you argue with those people, really. Those people who just stamp the floor and say, that's not enough. I think they're the kind of people who, you know, they're, 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 what they're doing is they take home their, their IKEA furniture... And, and they, they can't work out why it can't fit together because they think they brought the deluxe super-duper uh, smorgasbord things. They've just got the Billy bookcases. That's all it is, right? I'm afraid to say the meaning of life is quite modest. It's a Billy bookcase. But hey, a Billy bookcase is a classic of design and it keeps your books. So I think we can find meaning in life. And the fact that it's not as highfalutin as some people expected, well, that's just unfortunate. Right. Okay, next tiny weeny uh, problem. I have a friend who has a shopping problem. Excellent, excellent, thank you. His angst is, would he be doing a good thing if while he's here, he obtains and spends Bristol Pounds? That's a very good question. Bristol Pounds, do people know about Bristol Pounds? It's a local currency for local people, right? Um, now, if you recognise the illusion I've made there, you might actually not feel so good about it. People think it's great. A lot of people think it's great. Because what the Bristol Pound does is it keeps all the local money in the local economy, right? Again, it's very peculiar, actually, because we say that, but with your Bristol Pounds, you can go into your local ethical shop and you can buy things like fair trade coffee and fair trade chocolate and bananas and things which come from other parts of the world completely. And clearly, um, they're not ultimately being paid in Bristol Pounds, right? It does actually get um, transformed into a more uh, reasonable currency. Before that, um, I'm not a big fan of the Bristol Pound because I think that it <laughs> plays into that parochialism, you know, that League of Gentlemen thing. This is a local shop for local people. We're not have your type of welcome here. Now, that's not what people want with the Bristol Pound. What people want is to keep their money 
out of the hands of, say, huge multinationals, where instead of the profits going to honest people earning their honest work, it goes to shareholders, hedge funds, and basically when it gets siphoned off to the rich and not properly taxed. And that's what people are trying to avoid when they're using Bristol Pounds. I think it's uh, the wrong way of looking at it. You, the way you avoid that is that you buy products uh, which are made by companies which do the right thing and are not huge multinationals and which pay people wherever they are in the world. So I think the Bristol Pounds, if you like, the wrong solution to the right problem, basically. Okay, so anyway, they're quite nice though. I mean, they're, they're nice notes. So if you want to sort of go and get yourself an actual Bristol Pound note, it's quite a nice um, souvenir of your time here, I think. I'm not sure who's on it at the moment. I don't think it's Banksy. It might, I don't think it's Gromit either, actually. It's probably Brunel. A bit boring. Um, the slave owners and the tobacco people aren't being dignified at the moment on the note. Although, of course, they are everywhere else in the city. If you walk around the place, you see this word Colston a lot of the time. Colston was a, you know, one of the great pioneers who opened up the seas for slavery. And the Wills Memorial Building, that fantastic building at the top of Park Street where you've got the university, Wills Tobacco. Some of you may be old enough to remember Wills cigarettes. Um, if you do, then it probably meant you didn't smoke them. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> next question, please. Hello, yeah. Um, I've got a big problem. Uh, why have I got 30-odd socks? Why have you got 30-odd socks? Okay. Well, you mean 30 socks 30 which don't socks match? Which don't have a partner. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a very big problem. I don't think the practical solution to that is to buy lots of the same sock. And now that way, if you lose one, you just replace it with another. I mean, this is, this is, this is very sensible. I don't think there's a, is there a philosophical reason for that. I think the philosophical explanation is it's more of a scientific one. It's entropy, isn't it? The whole world is going to pot and everything goes from a state of more order to disorder. And, and philosophy is an attempt in a way to try and uh, not reverse that, but to stop it. I mean, in philosophy, we try and sort of impose some kind of order on the world and understand it. And so, you know, if you have that impulse, if you do philosophy, you'll be in the habit of trying to make the world more orderly. And as a result, that might have a knock-on effect. That you take more care about your socks and things, because that kind of thing is going to bother you as well. So maybe by doing philosophy, you're going to encourage yourself to keep the world in more order, and therefore you'll have fewer odd socks. But in practical terms, the solution is... Go to Marks and Spencer's, or other retailers are available, and buy 30 of the same socks, and it doesn't matter if you lose some, right? And also, it's very convenient. And I'll get there, but there are a lot of gentlemen, particularly in this audience, who do something very similar to that anyway, actually. Next question. Um, can I ask your philosophical perspective on monogamy? Oh, my philosophical perspective on monogamy. Well, that's actually a very, very good question. Because... This seems to be a moral question, you know, monogamy. Is monogamy right or wrong? And there are lots of people who think that actually uh, it isn't a moral question at all, actually. Uh, Peter Singer in his book Practical Ethics, he quite strikingly at the beginning of that, you know, when I read that as a young undergraduate, you know, not knowing anything, and, but, but not yet realising I didn't know anything. That's the progress you make. I now don't know anything, but I, I'm a bit more aware of that. He says, you know, that when people think about morality, they tend to think, and he was writing in the 70s, of things like sexual morality, who you should sleep with and, and how often and in what positions and using what forms of contraception or not. And he was saying, actually, sex is a trivial moral issue. He says it raises as many moral issues as, say, buying a car. 
And in fact, given that buying a car has perhaps huge economic and environmental impacts, maybe even less. So actually, sex is not a big moral issue at all, and so there's not much to say, really, about the morality of monogamy. If it makes you feel good, then um, do it. If not, hey, you know, everyone to their own. However, I don't think that's entirely the whole story, to be honest, because Singer's kind of right in the sense that there's an old-fashioned view of morality, a sort of religious-based morality, which is basically about prescribing how you live in that very narrow way. But there's another form. In morality, there's also ethics, if you like. Ethics, which is the question, how do I live a good life? And a good life meaning not just how do I treat other people as best as possible, but how can my life flourish for me too? Now, if you start thinking about that, if you think that ethics is about how we live, live flourishing lives, and you think that our intimate personal relationships are an important part of our lives, whether we have them or not, not having can be an important part of your life as well, then it comes clear that it's an important ethical issue. Because how happy we are with our life, how much we're flourishing, is going to depend a lot on the status of our private lives and how we conduct them. So from that point of view, monogamy does become an issue. I'm going to slightly fudge the answer, though, because I think that with matters like this, I don't think you can simply say that one thing is right for everyone or not right for everyone. But what I think is the case is that it does seem, I don't think it's an accident probably, that monogamy is the state that a lot of people aspire to, because I think for a lot of people, what makes them most content and what makes the people they're with most content is that kind of intimacy which is limited to one other person, partly because, you know, hey, there's only enough time to go around and attention to go around, but clearly some people thrive in other forms of relationship. So that's the real question. It's not, is it right or wrong? It's what forms of relationship help us to thrive, and monogamy clearly is one option which many people find uh, is, is very effective. Thank you. I did say it wasn't entertainment, it was edutainment. Um, not many laughs in that one. Good. Julian. Next question. Julian, um, I have a friend who lives in Greece. And at the moment he can only afford to live in a barrel. But he says, he says he's quite happy with that. And you as a philosopher, what do you think? Uh, well, if he says he's happy with that, he probably is. Although, of course, I think you have to be aware of psychology here. The problem with philosophers is that they've forgotten about psychology. They didn't used to. David Hume was a great psychologist. But they've kind of forgotten about that. And, of course, if someone says they're happy, it doesn't mean they are. Uh, this is the problem with happiness surveys, of course. Because a lot of the time, if, you, if, you, if you're committed to the view that what you do is great, and, of course, it must make you happy, you're likely to report that you are happy. I think this is one of the big problems with people saying the religious belief makes them happy, Right. I mean, if you're supposed to believe that you, your soul has been saved by the Son of God and that eternal life awaits you, and someone says, are you happy? It seems a bit bloody ungrateful to say no, doesn't it? So even if, in fact, you're really struggling and everything, you're probably more likely to say, yeah, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm happy, I'm happy. Whereas actually, you know, if, you're, if you've sort of embraced um, humanism, for example, and you're, you've embraced that kind of life, so you might sort of pride yourself on the fact that, you know, you proudly look reality in the face and you see the, 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 the rubbish of the world for what it is and everything. And if someone says to you, how, how are you happy? You might say, happy, happy. I'm not here to be happy. Don't be so shallow. You know, I'm here to see the world for what it is and, and through my will to power overcome and do what I can to, to make sense of this meaningless, horrible world. 
I'm not happy though, you know. So, um, <laughs> and I've lost a question, so we're going to grief. So is your person in happy, could he be happy living in a barrel? Well, of course, of course he can. But I'm always very suspicious of people who sort of make out that that's the ideal, right? The ideal is poverty. There are a few people who, you know, praise poverty and truly embrace it. Uh, but most people don't. Most people who praise poverty have come back from visiting a poor country and really admire how everyone's really happy there. And then they get into living their normal lives and, and they share their pictures on their iPhone over Twitter with everybody else. And I think there's a kind of reason for that and a reason why we give money to organisations that are there to relieve poverty, presumably is that we think that people should have more than just a barrel to live in and enough food to keep them alive barely to the next day. It goes back to this idea of what a flourishing life is. A flourishing life is one which includes a lot of good things, or many good things. They're not always the things which cost money. That's a, a mistake we often make in a society where so many things are for sale. But I think most people would, you know, you clearly be flourishing more. But if your friend, if your friend really is genuinely content in that situation, then he or she is to be envied. And all I can hope is that, uh, nonetheless, although they are living in that barrel like that famous uh, philosopher of age, uh, they're not masturbating in public, because you can probably get arrested for that now. And that would not make them happy. Thank you. Who's next? Hi. Um, bringing all your competences to bear, what's a good place to eat in Bristol this evening? <laughs> That's a very good question, Richard. Nor Richard Norman, very famous uh, humanist philosopher, a proper philosopher, not like me. Um, good place to eat in Bristol. This is indeed a philosophical question, as Richard knows. Because what does it mean to eat well? I'm afraid you've got me on a hobby horse here. I could be here a while. Now, here's the problem. Eat well. What does that mean? Well, if you read a restaurant review, what happens? Someone goes into a restaurant incognito. They eat the food, um, they look at the ambience, the service, all that kind of stuff, and they tell you whether it's good, bad, or rubbish. Okay? If you read the magazine, what's the best, I don't know, quiche that you can buy? The taste test. What happens is they assemble a load of quiches, and people taste them without knowing anything about them, and they say, hmm, that's the best one, and that's the result. Now, this is, this is the way we think taste should be. It should be objective, impartial. But by objective and impartial, we mean let's strip away... Everything from the experience of eating, apart from the actual physical experience itself, in complete ignorance of everything behind it. That, I think, is... Oh, pop the champagne cork over there, thank you. Um, I'll have one over here, thank you. Uh, <laughs> that is a kind of pleasure, it's a kind of hedonism, but I think it's a shallow one. I'm all for pleasure, right? But I think the richest pleasures we get in life are ones which bring more of our capacities to bear than the simple senses operating, you know, without any knowledge of anything else. I think, for example, do eggs from free-range chickens taste better than those from chickens which are in cages? Quick dropper, who thinks yes? Who thinks no? All right, a lot of people know, okay. It depends on the circumstances. Now, what happens is, here's the answer. I, I mean, I think it's very similar, but generally speaking, most of the time when people try and give people a blind tasting, they can't tell the difference. And the people who are convinced, they'll say, oh, these lovely eggs from the chicken, can't you just see the rich yolks and everything? They can't tell the difference in a blind tasting, and they taste exactly the same. 
So you might think that proves the people who said no right. They don't taste better. But the point is that why do we think they taste better? The reason we think they taste better is that actually taste is multisensory. We know this. All these experiments which show people being fooled, that people will think a white wine is a red wine if you add a dye to it and all that kind of thing. People will say, oh, that shows how easily fooled we are. No. What it shows is that the experience of eating is something which we bring our broader beliefs and judgments to. So, in other words, if you believe, and you, uh, the eggs are from a chicken which had a good life, they will taste better to you, and that's real. They genuinely taste better to you. You can strip away that effect by taking that away from you or lying or misleading you, pretending they came from that or pretending they were caged. But in, in a position of knowledge where you've got that, it tastes different. And I think all our things, everything tastes different. The whole experience of eating is different depending on what we know about it. So from a philosophical point of view, the best places to eat in Bristol are the places where you know the people working there are being paid properly, that they get to keep their own tips, that the animals that are served if you eat meat are from well-reared animals that have been properly looked after, that they, they're buying their products from people and paying them fair rates, they're paying their taxes. It's not a multinational franchise where all the money's going off and, and not being paid. Those are the best places to eat, and you will have a better eating experience because eating, at its best, involves our whole worldview and ethics as well. Good question, thank you. Okay. I have a friend who has children in her in their thirties who won't leave home. Yeah. Okay. Children in their thirties who won't leave home. Oh, well, there are a couple of ways of looking at that, aren't there? Okay. So the question is, do you have any special obligations to your to your children? I think the problem is, and the, the reason they're probably still there is they manage to sort of like play on the sense that you do, right? But I think maybe you could get around this by presenting them with a rather different argument, which is that actually you are morally obliged to take the interests of everybody um, equally, and you have no special privilege to your own children, right? And so therefore, it is not your responsibility to look after them. And here's the argument you could use. It's costing you a certain amount of money, isn't it, to keep them under the roof, I would have thought. Extra fuel, all that kind of thing. Stuff like that, yeah? I know, it's going to cost a bit of cash, isn't it? If, it's, if they're paying, it's a bit more difficult, I have to say. But if they're paying, maybe they can do a market rent. If they're paying, then you could be renting out the room to someone at a higher rate. Whatever, there's going to be a cost. Now, the question is this. You've got to ask your children. How much do they think, for example, their own lives are worth? How much would they expect you to spend to save them from death, right? Um, they'd probably say pretty much everything you've got, right? Okay. So you say, okay, good. So, say, say 500 pounds, definitely, yeah? Yeah, okay. So 500 pounds. You say, yeah, 500 pounds. Uh, every month you're with us, it's costing us about 500 quid. Or maybe it's 500 quid a year, no matter what it is. Now, with that 500 pounds, right, I could donate that to a charity, which is literally going to save the life of someone in the developing world, right? Now, are you telling me, right, that you being able to stay here is of the equivalent value of someone's life in another part of the world, right? They're 30. If they were 13, they'd probably say, well, yeah, duh, but they're not, they're 30. So they're probably, at that point, be a little bit uncomfortable. So you say, what you're doing is, you're, you're valuing your own comfort way, way above that of these people. You're, you're, you're inhumane, you're, you're evil, you're wicked. Uh, your moral obligation is to get out so I can donate that extra money to charity and save a life, right? 
And if they turn around and say, yeah, but you've got a special duty to me, I'm your child, just, just tell them um, to go and read Peter Singer or something and uh, come back when they've got a decent reply. Now, they may go back and come back with a decent reply, but it'll probably take them some time. So at the very least, they'll be out of the house for a little bit. So, so try that. I have to say, for philosophical advice for dealing with children, I'm a bit unconvinced about this. I'm doing this here um, in, well, in all seriousness, obviously. I entirely believe in the power of philosophy to solve all your life problems when suitably uh, distorted. But um, there is a genuine kind of philosophical counselling movement. And it's quite broad, actually. I mean, there are people who, who do claim that you're, you're doing something quite different with philosophy. It's not a replacement for psychotherapy. There's a, there's a kind of useful thing you can do with philosophy to help them think through their problems. But there are people who genuinely seem to think that you know you can solve life problems with philosophy straightforwardly. You know, the guy in America wrote a book called Plato, not Prozac. It's a great title, isn't it? Plato, not Prozac. Um, the idea that you read Plato make it feel better. And he was on a radio discussion when this movement had one of its brief flourishings of uh, popularity. And someone asked him a question like that. And you put him on the spot. You know, well, what would you say then? Really, your philosophical wisdom to a kid who who refused to tidy up when you want to do say, I would turn around and say to him, well, as Nietzsche said, that which does not kill us makes us stronger. Now, if you think that would persuade a 12-year-old child to tidy their room, I think you need to get out more and, and possibly read less Plato and take more Prozac. Okay, <laughs> next please. So I was going to say that my friend has this problem, but to anyone that knows me, they will know that it's me. So... Um, I have, well, it's not really a problem. I'm just a very tall woman. So it means that I don't actually need help getting my bags off the rack in the plane. Many men offer, and I'm like, no, I'm way taller than you. Thanks very much. But the problem, and it is actually a bit of a moral problem for me, is that I just can't find shoes that are big enough for my feet. And I've got size nine feet, and I'm a vegetarian. So, how do I get good shoes that are not leather? Okay, how can philosophy help solve that problem, I wonder? Well, okay, I suppose what you could come to realise is that certain categories of, you know, ways of carving up the world are to a certain extent arbitrary, right? And, that you know, um, they say philosophy is meant to carve nature at the joints. That's the idea of uh, philosophy, and uh, science as well, to try and understand the world as it is, right? The point is that a lot of the conceptual schemes we bring to the world don't do that very well. We've got to keep improving them. Now, it seems to me, perhaps the answer to your, your problem here is that um, they're not making women's shoes in your size. Well, hey, who says they're women's shoes, right? Wear men's shoes. They say, but maybe you prefer the more traditionally feminine styles and you don't want to walk around in, in men's shoes. Um, that's fine. But you can challenge that as well, I guess. Take it as an exercise to challenge your own conceptual framework, see things in a different way, wear big boots. By the way, though, I think there's a fundamental point here which is true that there is a gap between is and ought widely identified in philosophy. You know, that just because something is a certain way doesn't mean it ought to be that way. And that recognising that gap is actually very important for bringing, around, bringing about moral change. In this case, the fact that you cannot find such shoes doesn't mean you ought not to be able to. So you have a new moral crusade there um, campaigning for that. And if anyone would like to join that campaign, um, then the lady at the back will be uh, taking up your signatures later. Okay. 
Yes, I, I have a friend who's an editor of a well-known uh, weekly magazine. Um, it, it includes two questions on a regular basis in the oh, interviews with celebrities. One of them is, uh, do you agree with assisted suicide? And the other one is, do you believe in an afterlife? Mm. I follow the celebrities' responses avidly, mm. but some weeks um, my friend elects to omit the questions uh, without any explanation. Do you think he should uh, provide an explanation to the readers? Yeah, very, I find that column really fascinating. So they ask the same questions to people all the time. And it's, it's very interesting to see their answers, the patterns. I like this gentleman, I follow them avidly. One is, you know, do you, do you um, watch your carbon footprint or something? And almost everyone says, yeah, but not as much as I ought to. I do fly a lot, you know, but I do recycle. And it's quite interesting because you can see everyone squirms on this, you know. And I think it's true, you know, that anyone who's got any kind of job or, or lifestyle to give them the opportunity to travel a lot is generally going to fly. And so that it does make it very embarrassing when you try and make a great deal of the fact that, you know, you've um, taken your carry cup, uh, your plastic reusable cup on the train and got your coffee in that on the way to the um, Heathrow Terminal 5. Um, another great one is, how, on a scale of 1 to 10, how satisfied are you with your life? And uh, Most people tend to say about 8 or 9, and pointing out there's always room for improvement. I think that probably says something about the kind of people who become very successful in life. They always want to do that little bit more. But you're saying, in this case, the, the, the problem is the person has left out these questions... And should they have to justify that? Do they have a moral obligation to their readers to put the same questions to everyone? Uh, this is a question about sort of equality of treatment, isn't it, really? Um, people volunteer to do these columns. Some people, it seems, are asked the question, and some people are allowed not to answer it. So do the principles of fairness do, uh, in, in, insist that we ought to ask exactly the same questions to everyone? Well, actually, I think that's... Possibly the answer to that is no, because when you think of principles of fairness, a very simple intuitive answer to that is uh, fairness means treating everyone in exactly the same way. But there's another idea of thinking about fairness and equality, which is, as we're extending the same fundamental privileges to everyone, but that includes the possibility that not everyone wants to be treated in exactly the same way and might have a certain leeway. So if it's the case that all people who are asked these questions are allowed to not answer one or two of them and all treat them the same way, then that is fine. If not, it is unfair that some people are getting special privileges. So the answer to your question is that there may well be a good answer to this, but I think you're right. The editor needs to tell us. We need to know. We need to find out as soon as possible. And please let us know what your friend says. Okay, let's um, just predict one last one. I, I know a family where which has a tradition of being extremely protect, protective. And the situation has arisen that we've, we've got... A, there's a, an 80-year-old father and a 30-year-old blind son. And the blind son basically doesn't go anywhere without the father. And this is obviously becoming a problem. And the father was asking me for advice. And I keep saying, well, he needs to be in a situation... You know, a relatively safe situation, but a situation that uh, where he has to cope on his own without you. And the response is always, ah, but no, it's not safe enough. Yeah, you? yeah, very, what, 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 what on earth can philosophy tell you there? Well, I, I think it, it can in a way, because I, I think this is an interesting one, because it's a moral dilemma, really, isn't it? Now, a lot of people say, okay, what can philosophy say about a moral dilemma? And you'll say your dilemma, and they'll say, well... 
A consequentialist would say this, and a Kantian deontologist would say this, and an Aristotelian virtue ethicist would say this, and you're somehow supposed to pick uh, of those things. Um, now, I think it's not quite like that. I mean, I, I think the best way to look at it is that each of these perspectives brings an important element of the picture into focus, but it's not all down to it. Now, when it comes to duty, there's a, there's a sense of duty here. We have duty to members of family um, to look after them, to do our bit for them, to give them some special attention. Most people would agree with that. But that duty is... And the, another way of looking at uh, ethics is to do with the consequences. We should do the thing which has the best consequences. And the best consequences in the long run aren't necessarily the best consequences in the short run. Okay? Now, in this case, I see no conflict at all between those two things. The sense of duty the adult feels towards the child here, who is a grown person, is, is to do the best for them. But doing the best for them means attending carefully to the consequences and trying to be aware of the fact that in what way, in the long term, are they being helped more by this excessive, perhaps excessive attentiveness or not. In particular, the person has to think, if they are dependent entirely on me, I mean, it's not only this natural thought that I'm older, I'll probably die before the younger child, but anything might happen at any time. You'd have to be old to die, unfortunately, you can fall under a bus. So I think the answer here is that um, the person has to kind of see that they have to be concerned. Their sense of duty can't be divorced from their thought about what the consequences must be. And they've really got to ask themselves whether or not in, in giving that little bit of added protection today, they're actually making the person less strong in the future. Um, so that's, um, yeah, so it seems to be, uh, uh, but that doesn't, doesn't tell you exactly what you must do. And I think that's a key point. I mean, I've been trying to sort of give philosophical advice here. Obviously, slightly tongue-in-cheek sometimes, and also very briefly. But ultimately, of course, it doesn't really work like that. Philosophy, to me, never sort of generates an easy, quick, and certain solution to real-life problems. If philosophy is of help with real-life problems, it's because it helps us to sort of think about them, perhaps in slightly different ways, bring certain tools of analysis to them. But that has to feed in with everything else. You know? I mean, philosophy is just one thing amongst others. We have to also attend to like, the psychology and, again, engineering and, and economics of all these things if we're going to actually do the, do the right thing. So um, I certainly misled you if I made you think that uh, philosophy could answer all your life problems, but then you, I'm sure you, none of you believed that, that was actually going to happen for one minute anyway. But it has been very interesting uh, having a go at doing that uh, this evening. Um, so thank you very much for, for sitting through this and enjoy the rest of the evening. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed the show. I've got more fantastic guests coming up in the regular series in which we talk about how to think like a philosopher. I've already been joined by Peter Adamson, Lisa Bortolotti, Rebecca Buxton, Claire Chambers, Patricia Churchland, Ona Flanagan, Tom Kasulis and Lucy O'Brien. We've got many more to come. If you'd like to support the podcast, why not consider buying How to Think Like a Philosopher, the book which is inspiring this current series, or just go to julianbagini.com and see what else is there. So until next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye. <laughs>